here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. You are listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. Exile, go listen to some boring podcast where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Cranch. Give me a name. Like who delivers this guy in a big spot? Joe, don't yell at me. Like in, the, in the big spot, who delivers better than this guy? Stop yelling at me. I agree. I am the king of banter, the most compelling voice in wrestling media, Joe Lanza, and you are listening to your favorite wrestling podcast, the best wrestling podcast on the planet. The Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast. And with that modest introduction out of the way, we got a big time show for you this week. Uh, let me tell you something. I'm going to teach some people some lessons this week. But isn't that what we do every week? Teach people lessons, drive the narrative, get people talking. This is the most subtweeted podcast in the world. And I'm sure people will be talking about this one too, because that's what we do. We make people talk. I am Joe Lanza. Rich Creech is gallivanting around Toronto or something. I don't know what he's doing. So he's not going to be here this week. So you've got me for an hour, 90 minutes, two hours, three hours. I don't know how long this is going to be. I got some big time topics for you. We're going to talk about PWG's Battle of Los Angeles. And a very compelling and interesting and diverse an awesome lineup that they have set for this year's BOLA, but a lineup that also tells a tale that has been rearing its head for the last three or four years, and that is the uh, the ever-evaporating star power of the U.S. super indie scene, and then a discussion of what can be done about it. We're going to talk about the WWE UK tournament that aired on the network this past week, what I thought of the shows, who I thought stood out, who I thought doesn't look like they don't belong, uh, you know, at the big time level, and we'll get to all that, a thorough breakdown of both of those shows, and then we got the television reviews that are normally on the subscription side, the Monday reviews of ROH, MLW Fusion, and Impact Wrestling that we weren't able to get to this week because I had some personal issues that didn't allow me to do so. Um, Married life's a different life, I gotta tell you. And I was tending to sick children on Monday, which is normally the day, Mondays and Thursdays, of course, is when I do the television reviews. Couldn't do it this past Monday. Kids were sick. I'm changing fucking, you know, diarrhea diapers and dealing with sick kids. So uh, there was no time to get to the television reviews. So we're going to do them for free. Free for all. 
this week on the flagship. So we'll get to the uh, Ring of Honor, MLW, and Impact reviews. And then a little bit of news and notes from all three of those promotions, too, along the way when we get to that. Uh, but first up, we got to talk about this bowl lineup. Because when I saw the first 11 names announced, first 10 or 11 names or so, it really jumped out at me. Uh, you know, what immediately jumped out at me was, well, number one, how eclectic those names were and how different they felt from recent bolas. But also it was very obvious that PWG was digging deep and searching the ends of the earth to fill this tournament right off the bat. Um, so, you know, I, I made a tweet at that time saying, wow, it's pretty striking how global and how deep they had to dig to come up with these first 11 names. But, you know, then let it play out, see how the rest of the tournament filled out. If we were going to get, uh, you know, the usual cast of characters or, 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 or what they would do to fill out the other, uh, I guess, 13 names. And then when all 24 names came out, I mean, my point was proven to a T that um, there really is a star power problem with the super indie scene in the United States. And really, that's been a problem that's been percolating over the last couple of years with WWE signing up tons of talent for developmental slash NXT and never really cutting anybody to make room for that new talent. They're just stockpiling talent. I don't think that's news to anyone. But what this has done, and when you throw in that, you know, Impact is signing up some people. And by the way, Impact is running tapings the same week as Bola this year, which, you know, again, speaks to my point. We have all of this talent that used to be your name brand indie talent, and they're all getting signed up by WWE, Impact, New Japan, whatever. It limits their dates. It limits their availability. In the case of people signed by New Japan and Impact, it completely eliminates them from the table in the case of people signed by WWE. And now, over the last few years, since about 2014, we've got ourselves a star power problem on the super indie scene. And really, if you just look at the BOLA lineups from about 2014 on, you'll see it happening right before your eyes. This has been happening right in front of our eyes. So as these names were getting released by PWG and, and their 24-man field was being filled out, I continued to hammer home this point. And I got to tell you, both publicly and privately, tons of indie promoters are agreeing with me and nodding along. It's a problem. I've had conversations both publicly and privately with multiple indie promoters, some of which book super indie promotions, quote-unquote, that are just nodding along like, yeah, it's, it, it is a problem right now. Now, now here's the thing, and I, and I want to make this point very clear. Because there's confusion on Twitter, and a lot of times on Twitter with the constraints of that medium, we've complained about Twitter for the last couple months here. We all know that Twitter's terrible, uh, especially for having uh, legitimate discussions. Um, Twitter is good for, um, you know, getting you know, quick, pithy thoughts on things. Getting the word out on whatever project you got going on 
and poking bears and trolling each other. Let's face it, that's all that Twitter is good for. It's not good for having long-form conversations or nuanced conversations. It's just a bad medium for that. But anyway, um, uh, what was I getting at here? So, you know, I, I've, I've had these conversations both publicly and privately and with promoters who are not along with me. But the thing about it is, what I want to make clear is, this isn't an issue of a lack of talent on the U.S. indie scene. It's not a lack of It's tons of talent out there. There will always be talent. A couple of years ago, when uh, a big talking point was, the indies are dying. WWE is killing the indies. My counterpoint to that was, that's a complete and utter bullshit. Because there's always new talent ready to replace the old talent. And there is plenty of talent out there. The problem right now isn't talent. If Bola wanted to book a 24-man, if PWG wanted to book a 24-man Bola tournament just full of great matches, they could do that. But this is a misnomer too. People seem to think that Bola is just about great matches. Bola is about star power. Bola has always been, and PWG also, uh, uh, you know, uh, to some extent as well, but especially their Bola event, has always been the indie all-star game. That's what it's been about. Collecting the hottest talent, the biggest name talent, the best talent for one mega tournament every weekend. As a consequence, the matches have always been phenomenal off the charts. Over the years, it's also become a place and a tournament that's scouted. William Regal goes to these things and scouts talent. Everyone has their eyes on it. So of course you're going to get great matches because when you have the biggest stars... Part of that is going to be they're also the best talent because cream rises to the top. But the but what they put together and what they book, it, it, the misnomer is they're trying to put together great matches. No, they're it's an it's an all star game. They're bringing together star power, and then as a consequence, for all those other reasons I just said, you're going to get great matches because usually stars are great workers. Usually, not always, obviously. And it's become the indie all-star game where everyone's out to impress. Everyone has their working shoes on in PWG, and especially so at Bola. Let me take you back to 2014, only four years ago. The 2014 Battle of Los Angeles. And you tell me if there is a... Indie, a super indie star problem in the United States right now. Actually, first we'll do this. Before we go to 2014, a great Twitter user did my research for me. His name is, I'll give you his handle, at Tim underscore dog underscore, T-I-M underscore D-A-W-G underscore, at Tim underscore D-A-W-G underscore. Um, he, you know, I did research of this year's Bola Field he did better research. 
So I'm going to use his research that he did. To exemplify what's going on in this year's tournament, then I'm going to take you back to 2014. I'm going to go over all 24 participants. PCO, first ever BOLA PWG debut. Brody King, first BOLA. Jody Fleisch, first BOLA. Uh, uh, Ilya Dragunov, first BOLA PWG debut. Robbie Eagles, first BOLA. Okay, Right off the bat, our first five participants, first BOLA ever. Uh, Joey Janela, second BOLA. Puma King, first BOLA PWG debut. David Starr, first BOLA. Ray Horus, second BOLA. Chris Brooks, first BOLA PWG debut. Matt Riddle, third BOLA. Darby Allen, first BOLA PWG debut. Adam Brooks, first BOLA. Flamita, second BOLA. Jonah Rock, second BOLA. DJZ, first BOLA PWG debut. Timothy Thatcher, second BOLA. T-Hawk, uh, first BOLA PWG debut. Shima, third BOLA. Um, hasn't been in one since, you know, 2007. Jeff Cobb, third BOLA. Travis Banks, second BOLA. Bandito, first BOLA. Walter, second BOLA. Shingo, second BOLA. Hasn't been one in one in ages, in the case of Shingo. Now, sounds like a lot of first-time BOLA participants and a lot of first-time PWG participants, period. Here's some more deeper stats for you. With only one-third of the field American, this is the most imports ever in a Battle of Los Angeles with 16. Only one-third of the field is American. This speaks directly to my point. There is a dearth of indie, super indie star power in the United States right now. They had to scour the globe to find their all-stars this year. Two-thirds of the field comes from outside of the United States. That's easily the most ever. Here's some more. This is the first BOLA ever where four continents are represented. And the second one ever where eight countries are represented. Again, speaking to the point of really going to literally the ends of the earth to find people for this tournament. Four continents. How about this? Only one-third of the field from last year is part of this year's field. Again, everyone's getting signed. Flamita, Travis Banks, Joey Janela, uh, Jeff Cobb, Matt Riddle, Jonah Rock, Ray Horus, and Walter. The only returnees from last year. Go back to 2016, which is only two years ago. There's only two entrants this year that were in the tournament two years ago. Cobb and Riddle. That's it. Everyone else is gone. And they've been replaced by foreigners. Because the stars aren't here anymore. Two of the three finalists from last year's tournament are in WWE today. Of the 14 wrestlers entering their very first BOLA this year, of those 14, only Jody Fleisch had debuted prior to last year in PWG. 
and that's and and that was way back in 2006. I mean, he's being brought back as you know, a hot nostalgia act who who heated back up over the last year. So guys, I'm not making this up. And Tim Dog did a tremendous job putting that together. You should all go follow him on Twitter, you know, do whatever. There's his plug. He's a good guy. Talk to him a lot. But they had to go to Australia and 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 Japan, which they don't do every year, and and Mexico and and you know, literally the ends of the earth to fill this field. And and listen, that's the other thing. It's a great field. I'm excited for this bola. It's eclectic. There's going to be some unique matchups, hopefully. Although they have a habit of the in the first round of putting people together who are familiar with each other. Um, so we'll see what happens in the later rounds or if they break that trend. It is a great field, but it does speak to the idea that everyone's getting signed up. So now that you see what 2018 looks like, let's just go back to 2014, which is just four years ago, to hammer home this point that the, that the U.S. Super Indy scene has dried up. Here are your participants from 2014. Drew Gulak. WWE, and, and where they are today. Drew Gulak, WWE. Kyle O'Reilly, WWE. Zack Sabre Jr., under contract in New Japan. Adam Cole, WWE. Biff Busick, WWE. Roderick Strong, WWE. AJ Styles, WWE. Brian Myers, WWE. Candice LeRae, WWE. Rich Swan. He was WWE until he got in the hot water. Chuck Taylor, available. Johnny Gargano, WWE. Mike Elgin, no one's going to touch him. Tommaso Ciampa, WWE. Trevor Lee, don't know if he's under contract to Impact, but there's a good chance the reason he's not in this year's tournament is because of that Impact taping, which again, the same weekend as Bola, which again speaks to my point. People getting signed. People being in other companies is hurting the U.S. super indie scene. Cedric Alexander, WWE. Bobby Fish, WWE. TJ Perkins, WWE. Are you seeing a trend? Ricochet, WWE. Chris Sabin, available? ACH, available? Kenny Omega, New Japan. Matt Seidel, uh, Impact. Chris Hero, WWE. So all but two or three or maybe what, three or four names would we have? ACH, um, possibly uh, Chris Sabin, maybe uh, Chuck Taylor. Are either not with WWE or or Impact, and that's 2014. That's only four years ago. And, and compare the star power of those names to what's on the indie scene today. All of these people were working indies in 2014. The scene was loaded. And slowly but surely over the years, people have gotten signed up. No one's getting cut. And over those subsequent years, 2015, 16, 17, if you really look at these bolo lineups, they had their asses saved. By Lucha Underground talent 
and the British scene exploding. And that kind of obscured a bit what was going on here in the United States with the scene drying up. 2015 saw the first wave of Lucha Underground talent like Pentagon Jr. and Aerostar and Angelico and Jack Evans and the first wave of British talent uh, you know, start to work the tournament. Uh, Marty Skrull worked it that year. Will Ospreay, Mark Andrews, Tommy End. Same thing in 2016. Again, tons of uh, European talent. Some of the people I just named, plus Pete Dunn, uh, worked his first bowler that year. Uh, Tommy End and Mark Andrews came back and, um, uh, Mark Haskins debuted that year. Along with, again, the Lucha Underground guys like Pentagon Jr. and Phoenix. Last year, same thing. More British. Flash Morgan Webster debuted. Travis Banks debuted. They dipped their toes in Australia last year with people like Jonah Rock. PWG, it, it, it hasn't been obvious that this problem has been because they've been taking internationally over the last three years to hide for the fact that the U.S.-based super indie scene is drying up. Because you go back to 2014, and how many Europeans and how many luchadors do you see in that field that we went over? It's, you know dramatically less. For the most part, it's all U.S.-based talent. You've got Zack Sabre Jr. Um, as I look over it, you have a couple Canadians, but, you know, PCO's a guy who's coming from Canada this year who really didn't break out in the United States until uh, WrestleMania weekend, the Canadians that were worked Bola in those days, like, you know, Mike Elgin and Kyle O'Reilly were essentially United States based. I mean, Mike Elgin lives in St. Louis, for God's sake. So, I mean, okay, you got a couple Canadians, Kenny Omega and, um, you know, but, but really these are, this was 2014 was like 95% United States based workers. We haven't seen those kind of figures since then. Why? The scene is drying up. What can be done about it? Well, the talent is there, like I said earlier. It's two-pronged. The talent has to get themselves over, and the indie promoters around the country have to get new talent over. And it's a struggle. I was talking to a promoter today who who uh, who who books for a super indie, and it's 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 become a struggle to not just get new people over, but just to get them booked. I mean, you'll get a date on a guy, and then you know if if you know they have an impact deal, impact comes calling for a taping, or if they get an international tour, you know you can't hold them back from. From, from doing a Japan tour or something, it, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's so much harder now. And, and that's what the promoters are expressing to me. But there's talent out there. Now, if you want to tell me, you know, there's people that PWG could have booked that they didn't, 
that are U.S. based. I mean, sure, you can probably come up with a couple names that I would consider big time names. Uh, you know, super indie caliber names. People like Shane Strickland, who I've heard whispers has have you know the PWG has issues with him. I have no idea if that's true, but that's what someone told me when I brought his name up. So maybe that's the reason he's not there. Uh, there's Nick Gage, who's obviously a huge indie name right now. But the uh, the issue that you fall into with Nick Gage is, you know, can he keep up work-wise with the kind of field that Bola puts together? Nick Gage is a garbage wrestler. He's a hard, he's a, he's a, he's a deathmatch wrestler. Would he get a big pop if he came out? I'm sure he would. But he's going to, you know, do his, what, what can you do with him? You do his crowd brawl in the first round, and uh, you probably have to beat him. And then, you know, he could do some tags on the second and third night. But Nick Gage is a special case. He's certainly a, an indie superstar right now and may, maybe the most over-indie wrestler in the United States. I've been in live crowds for this guy. But he's a special case. I'm not sure that's a PWG kind of guy. So who else do you have? You've got, okay, some of the St. Louis boys like Myron Reed and Kurt Stallion. The Elgin kids that a lot of people are high on. They don't have the name value right now that PWG covets for something like Bola. It's an all-star game. Who else? For years, people shouted at PWG, use the locals. Hey, this year they've tried it. They gave a shot to people like Eli Everfly and Brody King and uh, Tyler Bateman, who they brought back after years and years. They, they tried some local talent. Brody King made it. He's in the field this year. He's a guy who got over and they're using moving forward. The other people, not so much. Eli Everfly bombed tremendously. Bateman uh, didn't work out for whatever reason. Um, they, they tried out some other people this year. They tried, you know, Fred Yehi, uh, um, you know, bombed pretty badly. He's a guy who didn't work out for them. So, you know, what I'm talking about promoters needing to fill the void by getting new people over, PWG, which typically just plucks the All-Stars, has even tried that themselves over the last year or so because they recognize that there's a problem right now. And PWG never used to concern themselves with that. That was a primary complaint from a lot of people. They don't use locals. They don't try new talent. It's just an All-Star game. Well, this year they've tried that. Doesn't that tell you something? And unfortunately for them, most of them, the new people they've given, they've given shots to haven't worked out. So here we are, plucking from Australia, plucking from Japan. Um, you know, they're very lucky the Dragon Gate split happened. I don't know that they get Shima and T-Hawk in this tournament if those guys are still working for Dragon Gate. They get Shingo because Shingo has a special deal and he's, he's allowed to freelance. He worked a champion carnival this year for all Japan. So again, two things I want to make clear. This is a great field. That's not my point. It's an interesting field. It's an eclectic field. It's a great field. I'm looking forward to it. My point is not that the field is bad. My point is the composition of the field tells an enormous story. It tells an enormous story. 
Are we going to see the Myron Reeds and Kurt Stallions and Anthony Henrys and um, Austin Theories and and uh, you know, Flip Gordons or people like that in the, in the coming year? Maybe. Those are all individual cases. Um, I'd argue some of those people I just named, uh, you know, MJF's another one. I'd argue some of those people I named um, certainly have the cachet and the name value that 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 would be befitting of, of a PWG All-Star game. Others do not yet. Some of them have other issues, like they're just not up to standard uh, with their ring work. But these are the kind of people, and look, these are names we all know. Where the future really lies are the names that a lot of us don't know. The guys that are still working their local scenes. And where promoters from other areas have to do some scouting and take a chance on people. And then those people have to grab it by the throat and take advantage of the opportunities and make themselves into names. Like Sammy Guevara did a couple of years ago. Like MJF has done over the last couple of years. But people, the scene, you know, people have been signed up faster than these other people have made themselves into viable indie superstars. And and, and to me, that's not even debatable at this point. Just look at your BOA lineups from 2014 onward. And you can see what's happened. I mean, they were very lucky that that people like PCO and Jody Fleisch have, um, have seen these these second career surges that they've had. These, you know, because that would be two of their more interesting names that wouldn't even have been on the table if that didn't occur over the last year. Look, I'm not saying there's no stars. Obviously, you have your Matt. You still have your. Your, your your pillar guys out there. You've got Matt Riddle and and um, and Joey Janela, who's who's made himself into a superstar, and um, you've still got your people like that Walter, who who now I would call a United State. You know, he he works enough here to and and he's over to the point where he's a, a, a you know super indie star. Um, and we'll see if anybody emerges from from a lot of these names that that PWG has farmed. Uh, from around the world and, and can fill some of those spots and get more consistent bookings here. Because they're not all going to work out. Maybe Puma King Bombs and Robbie Eagles really has a tremendous tournament and makes himself into a name or, uh, you know, who knows. But I really think it's just an issue of... Um, it's it's just the two things have met at an unfortunate time. Number one, everybody getting signed up. And number two, not enough new stars being created by promoters and not enough wrestlers, uh, you know, stepping up and grabbing it by the throat. It, it's really got to be a comp. The wrestlers can't do it by themselves. It's really hard to do it by yourself. A guy like Joey Janela really needed the outlet of those spring break shows given to him by the promoter. You, you kind of have to work. It, like, uh, uh, you can do it by it, but it's so much harder. 
the promoters and the wrestlers got to work hand in hand to get these new people over. You've got your PCOs and your Sammy Guevara's who have done creative things um, to, to put themselves on the map or back on the map in PCO's case. But, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's good to see. Look, I just saw Defy Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest. They just booked Ricky Starks this week. That's the kind of stuff we need to see. Ricky Starks is a guy who I've been talking about for a couple years now on this show, who has the ability to become a quote-unquote indie all-star. But he can't do it if, if he never gets booked outside of Texas. So for a company like Defy to say, hey, I've watched this guy, we've scouted him, we think we're going to bring him out to the Pacific Northwest. That's new eyes on a guy like Ricky Starks. Yeah, we'll see what happens moving forward. Now, look, this is something that can rect- be rectified within a year or two because the talent is out there. I've always been confident that the talent's out there. They need opportunity, and then they need to take advantage of the opportunity. And that's where we're at right now with the U.S. Super Indie scene. That's where we're at. I mean, just look at what happened to Evolve. I mean, you know, they just lost Zack Sabre Jr. and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and Keith Lee, and they're retooling. It started WrestleMania weekend. Uh, you know, uh, the retooling in Evolve, which is, again, another quote-unquote super indie. And, you know, they've, re- they've, they've been forced to reshuffle the deck and push a whole new slate of people. That's where we're at right now. You see it in Evolve. You see it now in PWG. And I've talked to promoters for other super indies, and they're they're all telling me the same thing. That's the time period that we're in right now. But I think Bola is going to be a tremendous tournament. I can't wait. It's going to be real fun to watch. There can be lots of clashes of styles. There could be, uh, you know, guys who step up and become huge international stars. They're you know. A couple of these guys are going to bomb. It's all going to be fun to watch play out. I mean, really, what would the scene look like? Let, let's say Matt Riddle. Let's say Matt Riddle and Joey Janela got signed tomorrow. What would the super indie scene look like in the United States? I mean, really. That's how perilous it is right now. Where you go back to 2014... Eh, you know, they all got signed slowly, and it really didn't do a ton of damage. This was a gradual thing. This was gradual. This didn't happen overnight. Let's talk about the WWE UK deal, two-day tournament follow-up to last year's tournament from last January. This one was not to crown a champion. Of course, we have a champion already, Pete Dunne. This was to crown a challenger for Pete Dunne on night two. The tournament actually started uh, 10 days earlier. Uh, This was taped. These two shows were taped on June 18th and 19th. The tournament actually started on the 8th of June, and then it didn't air until this past week. Uh, But they did not air the first round 
on the network. They aired the first round matches on their YouTube page, the WWE uh, YouTube page, which to me was a mistake. I mean, it all should have been on the network. And I don't know if they're eventually going to put those matches on the network. I'm someone who does a podcast every week, um, you know, is paid to write about wrestling. Uh, and I had no idea how to watch these matches. And then when people pointed me to the YouTube, then they were impossible to find on the YouTube page. I mean, it wasn't obvious at all. Even within the WWE UK section of their YouTube page, you had to go digging, you know, to find a video, a collection of all of the matches together. It was absolute disaster, the first round of this thing. Uh, but the quarterfinals, semis, and finals were neatly packaged on the network where really they should be putting everything. I mean, uh, it's, it's, look, if you want to put it on YouTube too to drive people to YouTube, that's fine. But why can't you do, put them on both? So that drove me nuts. Uh, the first round, there wasn't really much to speak of. They were all uh, short matches. You're not missing anything if, if like me, uh, you don't want to go, you know, bouncing around YouTube trying to find these things. You're really not missing much. You can pick things up with the quarterfinals that aired this week. They aired these in the middle of the week. Uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Time, which was prime time, back in the UK, which also... Uh, you know, went head-to-head with some World Cup stuff, which I guess wasn't well thought out. But look, you're always going to run into some kind of conflict with these sorts of things. So, um, you know, that was a tricky spot. But uh, but yeah, to me, these were both excellent shows. I enjoyed the fuck out of both of these shows. I thought they were two of the better shows that WWE has produced this year. Uh, neither one of them were as good. Well, you know, I don't know. They weren't as good as, as like, takeovers, but I, I didn't think that they were far behind in all honesty and I do think that both of these nights were better than just about if not every single main roster pay-per-view that they've done this year they were certainly easier watches and top to bottom uh, I can really only point to one or two matches that I thought weren't good everything was good or better and I thought over the course of the two nights there were four matches that were awesome shade below match of the year level tier I think the big story is they've really found themselves something in Zach Gibson, who impressed the shit out of me. Zach Gibson is a guy who, you know, I think everyone universally has always been impressed with his promo ability. And he is one of the rare heels in wrestling right now who gets genuine heel heat. But he's never particularly blown me away bell to bell. I've always seen him as just a guy. But this tournament, he was outstanding bell to bell. And he didn't really get a chance to cut uh, promos. Which is, is his calling card, his, his big strength. Bell to bell, he was outstanding. And I think they really have something with this guy. And this potentially was a breakthrough performance for him, depending on how they follow it up. And if they follow it up. I think he was excellent. In all four of his matches. And I thought that they really got over his uh, his Shankly Gates finish. That, you know, that armbar deal uh, over as a killer move. And he blew me away bell to bell. These were the best Zach Gibson matches I've ever seen. So I thought he was a big winner coming out of this. 
I thought Flash Morgan Webster, another guy who I've never been super high on, obviously he puts a ton of effort into his gimmick and his persona. And, uh, I mean, let's face it, without that gimmick and without that persona, which some people think is kind of, you know, dopey, I don't necessarily disagree, but no matter where you stand on the gimmick itself, the whole mod thing, it would have taken him a lot longer to break out and, and to get, you know, bookings over the years without that gimmick. I mean, there's no question about it. But he impressed me here. He had very exciting matches on, you know, all the way through this tournament. From the first round all the way on, until Gibson really overtook him, I thought Flash Morgan Webster was the MVP of the entire tournament until the later rounds when Gibson just blew right past him. So he impressed me. Who didn't impress me, unfortunately, uh, were some of the ladies. I thought that uh, Killer Kelly looks like somebody who's just not ready for this level. She wrestled in the absolute disaster of a triple threat match, which was originally a four-way Ginny got hurt early on. They edited her out of it. They changed it to a three-way with some editing. and So you really can't hold that match against anyone, but she didn't exactly stand out. There was a singles match on night two with Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly, which I strongly suspect, and I don't know this for a fact, that maybe Ginny was supposed to be involved in that match somehow, but she got injured the night before. Uh, maybe it was supposed to be Charlie Morgan versus Ginny. It was kind of odd that Killer Kelly worked both nights. Um, or maybe not, I don't know. But uh, Morgan and Kelly did not look good in that match. I thought it was too long. It exposed both of them. Um, particularly on two shows that were so good with so much great wrestling. Uh, they really stood out as a step slower than everybody else. Um, they did that. It looked, it looked like they weren't comfortable with the larger WWE ring. They were doing that short, choppy, uh, slow rope running, which just takes you right out of a match. Uh, there were a, a ton of awkward exchanges between the two. The work was sloppy. Uh, the finish was sloppy. Not a good showing from Morgan and Kelly. They did not look like they belong at this level. And it's... It, it's and now look, the, the people who run Pro Wrestling Eve can get on my case uh, like they did when I when I you know when I said that and fans can get on my case, but that's all there is to it. They didn't look like they belong on this level. They didn't look like they're ready for big time major league wrestling. I, I'm sorry, I just have to have to call it like I see it. And you can tell me how great they are in Pro Wrestling Eve and this indie and that indie. Look, I you know I don't care. I've seen Morgan before. This is my first exposure to Kelly, but. In this tournament, those two in particular, uh, you know, Isla Dawn didn't exactly blow me away either. Uh, but but that match just showed me, especially surrounded by all the other great matches that were on the show, that they just are not ready for this level. Are they Largo Loop caliber? Sure. They look like they have some potential? Absolutely. But you can't put Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly on Raw right now. You just can't. You can't do it. They're not ready. I'd hesitate to put them on NXT TV. Now, Zach Gibson, you put him on Raw tomorrow. You could put him on Raw tomorrow. I know he can promo. That's not a problem. Now I know he can wrestle. I mean, that guy is working Raw tomorrow. Along with some of the other people we saw in this tournament who I have no, no issues can hang. And now they're, you know, the other big announcement here was the, the announcement of the uh, 
uh, NXT UK. Sub-promotion of a sub-promotion is what we're dealing with now. Now NXT has sub-promotions. As WWE continues to grow their global brand, which I don't begrudge them one bit, I would do the same thing if I were running things. I'm a little bit worried about it as a fan. I'm a little bit worried about it. You have to be. If you're a fan of worldwide wrestling, I don't know how comfortable I am with WWE swallowing up uh, the European scene I, and then and, and, and going to other parts of the world and attempting it as well. I, you know, I, I like different wrestling. I don't want to see homogenized WWE wrestling everywhere. But it is what it is. And, um, you know, they made the official announcement. Johnny Saint is the GM. He's terrible at it. Uh, the poor guy, <laughs> he just doesn't cut. You know, it's, it's I don't, you know, it doesn't cut a WWE caliber promo, Mr. Saint. I get why they're using him. You know, he's a legend and all that. and um, He's very stately. I get it. But when he's out there talking about, you know, four-way fatal matches on a tape show, no less, you know. I got to get him up to speed on what's going on here. Wouldn't kill him to look a little more interested, too. So we got the UK brand. They announced a bunch of dates for tapings and such. So they're going to move full steam ahead here. And they did some angles here, too, on these two shows along the way to set some things up. So uh, we'll go through it quickly. I'm not going to go through every match. The quarterfinals, though... um, you know, I thought Zach Gibson, again, he looked great all the way through, and he really uh, set up that Shankly Gates finish. You know, he beat Gallagher with it. He beat everybody with it. Uh, he beat Gallagher with it in the quarterfinal match. The Jack Gallagher-Drew Gulak first-round match that everybody was raving about, by the way, I want to talk about that quickly, one of the most overrated matches I've seen in, in a long, long time. Oh, my God. I mean, what are people... People were raving about this Drew Gulak-Jack Gallagher match. Um... I mean, this was just a nice little match. I mean, look, and I know everyone's screaming, well, Joe, you don't like grappling. and It wasn't even great from that perspective. It was just a nice little match. The best thing about it was the flash KO finish. I love the Jack Gallagher headbutt flash KO. I love that. But this was not any kind of great match. I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, you know, very overrated. It was a nice little match. But the way people were talking about this was like one, it was one of the better TV matches of the year. I mean, that's definitely not the case. Not the case at all. There's a... I would say that most weeks NXT... Not the last couple of weeks, but most weeks. When, when NXT was really on fire earlier this year, there was a better match on NXT every week than that Jack Gallagher-Drew Gulak match. I mean, I, I have no idea what people are ranting and raving about with that. I think what it is, this is really what it comes down to. Anytime people see a grapple-heavy match now, it's almost like it gets bonus points for that because that style is, is so rare to see. I, I really think that's it. This, there was really nothing special about it. But anyway, uh, Gibson beats Gallagher uh, in the quarterfinals. Joe Coffey and Dave Mastiff had a... And I hate Matt. Mastiff's a guy I can't stand. And let me tell you something about Mastiff in this tournament, both in his first-round match and this quarterfinal match. When he cuts out the shtick... And he just wrestles like a like a like a like a big dude. He is so much more enjoyable. 
this coffee Mastiff match was a was a nice horse battle. They really went at it. Mastiff is so much better minus the shtick. I mean, it, you know. Because Mastiff's a guy I normally can't stand. But, you know, he's another guy who surprised me in this tournament. Flash Morgan Webster and Jordan Devlin was the best of the quarterfinal matches. Very exciting. Tremendous action. And then Travis Banks knocked off the upstart Ashton Smith, who upset Joseph Connors in the first round. And he seems to be a guy that they're, they're, they're high on. Then we had the messy four-way that turned into a three-way. That was to earn NXT women's title shot. Tony Storm won that, of course. They completely eliminated Ginny from the broadcast, and they just passed it off as a three-way. Now, I don't know if they Ginny's injury happened so quickly into the match that they just shot a three-way, or if they creatively edited it and made it look like a three-way. That I don't know. There wasn't much to this. There was clearly some jump cuts. Um, So it's a hard match to really rate other than no one really had a chance to stand out between all the jump cuts and how short it was. It's just a mess. And I feel terrible for Ginny, who's very talented. And this would have been a big opportunity for her. But I'm sure she'll get another one. She's way too good to be denied. She'll, She'll get other chances. And then we had the semifinals. Zach Gibson and Flash Morgan Webster. This was a... um you know, a sprint. Webster went right after him. And it, it had a really cool um uh I'm looking at my notes here, hold on. I'm pulling a Dave Meltzer here as I as I stutter as I look through my notes. Yeah, so Flash Morgan Webster, you know, he hit him with the tope. He went for a second one, but Gibson caught him, gave him the helter-skelter on the outside, threw him back in the ring, gave him the Shankly Gates, and tapped him out. And that was there, there was a lot of match-to-match continuity and storytelling with Gibson as uh, that sort of repeated itself with the Travis Banks match in the tournament final. Uh, Banks beat Joe Coffey, and then Joe Coffey did the heel turn on Banks and attacked him threw his shoulder into the post to set the storyline up for the finals of Zach Gibson, the heel, wrestling Travis Banks, the fiery underdog, uh, the fiery babyface underdog, who, by the way, has been working as a heel in progress for the last year, which is funny. But in this environment, Banks was like the gutsy underdog babyface with the injured shoulder. Ripe for the picking against Gibson, who's been tapping people out with their arm the entire tournament. And Gibson and Banks just, just you know, they, they, they tore the house down. I thought that match was tremendous. And a very similar finish. Banks went for a tope. Uh, uh, Gibson caught him, delivered the helter-skelter on the outside, and then rolled him back into the ring and put the Shankly Gates on. Third attempt, because he tried the Shankly Gates three times in that match. The first time, Banks fought out of it. The second time, Banks got the rope break. Banks was getting, there were constant cutoffs in this match. Every time Banks would mount some offense, Gibson would would cut him off by attacking that shoulder. And finally, Banks got a little offense going, but he made the one mistake on the outside. Which is also what cost Flash Morgan Webster the the round before. This was tremendous stuff. Gibson was so good here. And and look, you got to give credit, I guess, to agents too, but they're not the ones out there wrestling the match. You know what I mean? 
these are the guys going out there they're performing. I'm sure it was put together this way. And, and you know, it's funny how when certain people get to WWE, they look a hell of a lot better. Like in the case of Gibson. And then in other cases, people come to WWE and, and they, 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 they don't look as good as they looked in other places. Like Shinsuke Nakamura is the most obvious example. Or, you know, Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly, who I just buried. But the Gibson-Banks match uh, was great. Banks was great in his role. Banks is a guy who I've been burying here. I haven't liked his progress run at all. His title run, his heel run in progress, I haven't liked it at all. I've come on this show and called him Dollar Store Davey. You know, I, I, I never liked his, you know, like his, his uh, buzzsaw slash Wolverine uh, slash, you know, Davy Richards ripoff gimmick. I, I haven't liked his heel work in progress. But he was tremendous in this tournament and particularly in this final as a gutsy underdog. So I got to give him credit. Hey, listen, if nothing else, Joe Lance is a fair man. It's one of the calling cards of this show. We're fair here. Gibson was fantastic. And then, of course, they had the one non-tournament match, which was a six-man match, which, again, was just an awesome match between uh, British Strong Style and the Undisputed Era. The beatdown of Pete Dunn was just tremendous. The energy that Undisputed Era brings, particularly O'Reilly and Strong, not so much Cole. Cole's role is kind of just to hang out on the outside and then come in and get all the glory. I get it. That's his role. So I'm not, this isn't me banging on Cole. But O'Reilly and Strong bring so much energy. Their matches are nonstop action. We saw it at the last takeover against Busick, not Busick, against uh, Oni and Lorcan. We saw it here in this six-man match. I mean, the energy is just outstanding. And Mustache Mountain, you know, they love to use these blind tags again. Great match-to-match psychology. A blind tag here proved to be the difference in this match down the stretch. And then that was to set up the match the next night where Mustache Mountain took on O'Reilly and Strong for the NXT Tag Team titles, which was another tremendous match. Four stars plus. And again, it was a blind tag that did Undisputed Era in again. Where... Bate gets whipped into the ropes. Seven makes the blind tag to his back. Bate then does a suicide dive to take out Roderick Strong on the floor. Kyle O'Reilly's left in the ring with Trent Seven. He's confused. Seven hits him with, you know, his uh, seven, whatever he calls it, the seven-star lariat, I think, his version of the Rainmaker, which the way he sort of adds that European uppercut flair to the move really makes it stand out. I love the way he hits that move. And Trent Seven is a much better worker than I ever give him credit for. His matches are always better than I think they're going to be. And then Bate flies back into the ring. Seven uh, puts O'Reilly in like a torture rack. Bate comes out with the uh, knee drop off the top rope. The old contract killer move that uh, No Remorse Corp used to use. Um and they win the NXT Tag Team titles, and the roof blows off the building. Tremendous moment. Two great matches, both the six-man 
on the first night and the title match on the second night. But the title match on the second night, and we talked about this a few weeks ago on this show, or it may have been on, on my TV reviews. I can't recall. But there's been such, in recent years, maybe the last decade, in WWE, you just don't get the memorable title change anymore. The ones that stick in your brain forever like you used to get in the 80s and 90s up until about the Attitude Era is when it stopped. You don't get the memorable title change anymore. This felt like a memorable title change. It was the right time and place. You got the local guys in 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 uh, in London in Royal Albert Hall. They beat their hated rivals. They take their belts. The fans go nuts because they weren't expecting a title change. I'll remember this title change. I'll remember the particulars about this title change for a very long time. And I can't say that about almost any other WWE title change over the last decade. I, I just can't. Unless it's like a money in the bank cash in or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, a, a couple of different worlds. But, I mean, you know, Chris Jericho has won the Intercontinental title like a thousand and, and, and one times. Can, can you name how many of them were memorable? How many of Edge's billion title reigns with, were memorable title wins, aside from the, the Money in the Bank cash-in? You know, it's, it's like the Usos have been tag team champions a billion fucking times. Uh, tell me their... Uh, run down their title wins for me. Tell me. Go ahead. Give me the finishing. Give me the finishing stretches. Give me the finish. Give me the opponents. Give me the event. You'd probably struggle to name one or two. You just don't get memorable title changes in this company. Alexa Bliss is like a six-time champion. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. But this title change, I'm going to remember this one. It's going to stick in my brain. Wow. Yeah. Remember, you know, five years from now on this show, I'm going to say to Rich, remember at Royal Albert Hall, when Mustache Mountain won the NXT Tag Team titles from Undisputed Era. That was, this is memorable. Remember the blind tag and the tope and then the cop killer finish and, and, the, and the crowd. I'll remember this one. Because it was a great match. You know, the hometown guys won. They made a moment here. A company that's always talking about making moments and then doesn't make any, they made a moment here when they probably weren't even really trying to do so. Just tremendous stuff um, on both nights from from these two sides. Undisputed Era and the British Strong Style. Two great matches. So uh, that was night one and the opener of night two. And I already talked about the, the, the Charlie Morgan Killer Kelly match, which just was not good. Then we had a three-way to determine the number one contender for the UK title which was a little confusing because we just had Zach Gibson win a tournament to determine the number one contender, but he's getting his title shot on this same show. This is to determine the next challenger, I suppose. And it was, uh, you know, they had uh, a, a terrible backstage deal with Johnny Saint, who can't talk his way out of a paper bag. I mean, the guy's awful. Um, you know, with, with, with the, the microphones in his face and all that to make it look like it was a big deal. And he said that based on Travis Banks making the finals of the tournament, he'd be a participant based on his 
performance in the tournament, Flash Morgan Webster would be the second participant. And based on his performance over the last year, whatever that means, Mark Andrews was going to be one of the participants. So those three guys get introduced for this three-way, this triple threat. And then Johnny Saint comes back out before the bell rings. And he says, oh, man, somebody else to this. And we're making this a four-way fatal match. So what we were graced to was another horrible Johnny Saint promo. But also, why didn't he just say that before? Why didn't he just name all four people? Well, yeah, you wanted to get the surprise of Noam Dar. I get it. But it kind of makes Johnny Saint look like a goof. It kind of makes it look like he's screwing the other three guys. Why would he do that? So either don't have them, you know, name the three guys prior at all and just, you know, if you want to do your surprise, I don't know. Just, you know, why have to, you know, it's just goofy. And you can see the three guys in the ring, like they're, they're selling it like they're upset that Noam Dar was a surprise entrant in the match, which they, by all rights they should be. Because from a kayfabe perspective, they didn't prepare for this. But anyway, so Dar is the next guy. It appears as though he's working babyface. It was tough to tell. It appears as though he's dropped the pervert gimmick that he was doing in 205 Live. And it sure seemed like he's going to stick with the NXT UK brand moving forward and not return to 205 Live, which is best for all involved. His matches weren't good in 205 Live. He had a one-note gimmick, which was funny for like a week before it wore out its welcome. And I'm not so sure Noam Dar would fit in with 205 Live right now. I don't think he's good enough, honestly. People tell me this guy's great. I saw plenty of Noam Dar before the Cruiserweight Classic and was never blown away. I saw Noam Dar in the Cruiserweight Classic be one of the worst guys in the tournament. I saw Noam Dar on 205 Live be one of the worst guys not named Arya Davari. Uh, you know, and arguably worse than him on the entire 205 Live roster. This four-way was okay, but I am not sold on Noam Dar. And I get it. He's 23, 24 years old. He's got plenty of time to improve. If nothing else, I've proven I'm not someone who's going to dig the heels in. I've turned the corner on Hangman Page. I've turned the corner on... Uh, who are the three geeks in ROH? Uh, the King. I've turned the, uh, the corner on the Kingdom. I've turned the corner on Zach, uh, Zach Gibson's ring work right here on this very show. Noam, look, I just have not been impressed with Noam Dar to this point. But, but I can tell you, I can tell you that there is a very good possibility that the cringe gimmick was holding them back, on, at least on 205 Live. Doesn't excuse his substandard, uh, you know, Cruiserweight Classic performances, but 205 Live, I'll buy it. So we'll see what he does on this brand. He's going to get a push, obviously, because he won this four-way match, and he's going to be the next challenger for Pete Dunne. And I'm okay with that. He's got new gear. Um, so, yeah, good for him. He could. He was a guy who needed a fresh start. It, it's like you don't want to be injured. I'm sure he didn't want to be injured. Nobody wants to be injured. No one wants to see anybody get injured. But he really, where the injury turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it got him, you know, he went away for six months, and now he's got the fresh coat of paint, and it's a fresh start for Noam Dar. I'm looking forward to it. Now, to be fair in the Cruiserweight Classic, look, he didn't face a murderer's row. 
Okay? He had Gurv Shira. He had Bollywood number one in round one. And he had Ho-Ho Lun in the second round. And Ho-Ho Lun, you know, is right there with Carmella and, and uh, Jinder Mahal as one of the worst wrestlers that WWE has employed in a decade. So, what are you going to do with Bollywood number two and, and, uh, and Ho-Ho Lun? I mean, really. And then he lost to Zack Sabre Jr. in the quarterfinals in another match that didn't really stand out. Zack Sabre Jr. wasn't great in that tournament. He was okay. He was better than Dar, that's for sure. But um, he definitely wasn't one of the, the standouts, that's for sure. Uh, so yeah, we'll see what uh, happens with Dar moving forward. I'm going to give him a chance. I am going to give him a chance. We had Adam Cole defending the NXT North American title against Wolfgang. You know, Wolfgang is fine. He's fine, but I really don't see what the company sees in Wolfgang. Don't know why he was like the fourth guy that they signed last year, or maybe not necessarily, who knows what's going on with those weird contracts, but the fourth guy that they seem to, you know, book on a semi-consistent basis, along with the British Strong Style guys, who are obviously very good. I don't get why Wolfgang was the other choice. I mean... I, you know, he's he's fine. He's okay. He doesn't have a WWE look. He doesn't have a major league look. Um, he's a better worker than than his look would indicate. Um, but it's not like he blows you away. He's not gangbusters in there. He did have a good tournament last year. I'll give him that. But this was not a great match against Adam Cole. It was a good TV match. That's what I would call this. It was a good TV match. And, of course, Cole retains the North American title. I just don't see a lot of upside with Wolfgang. He's okay, I guess, to have on the roster, but I don't know. I could easily live without Wolfgang. Next up, we had an NXT match. Aleister Black and Ricochet defeat EC3 and Velveteen Dream. Dream abandoned EC3 in this match, and Black hit EC3 with the Black Mass. It was good. It was good. It was okay. But it's not really what I wanted on this show. I could have done without it. Here's a match I love. Shayna Baszler defeats Tony Storm. And listen, again, if people want to get on me for being hard on Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly, be my guest. But you can't possibly watch what Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly did out there and then watch this Baszler-Tony Storm match and think that Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly are even within... The same fucking stratosphere as these two, either in presence. Uh, we can nitpick work if you want, I suppose. But just presence and charisma alone. Okay? And Baszler is not super experienced. Tony Storm um, is not exactly a 20-year pro. Although she's been wrestling longer than any of the people we're talking about here. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people got on me, including the Pro Wrestling Eve people, who, I mean, let's face it, a stiff wind gets those people upset. So I can't really get wrapped up in upsetting the Pro Wrestling Eve people. Okay? They get upset about everything. But it's like, I wasn't saying that Charlie Morgan and Killer Kelly, that their careers are over. Or, you know, I'm just saying that they're not ready for this level yet. And you watch this Baszler Storm match, and that's obvious. I loved the Baszler Storm finish. I love the whole match. I love the idea that Tony Storm struggled to keep up with Baszler. Baszler is, at best, 
when she's not selling and when she's dominating an opponent. At this stage of her career, it, it number one, it fits her gimmick. Number two, it's where she has where she's at at this stage of her career. It plays to her strengths to just dominate an opponent rather than to sell for extended periods of time. Which I get it. Eventually, she's going to have to learn and get good at. But dominating suits her at this point. And Storm did a tremendous job. Check out Storm's facials when she's in the rear naked choke and struggling to get to the ropes and compare to the goofy faces that Nikki Storm was making. Uh, Nikki Storm. Nikki Cross. It's a, come on, that's a reasonable mistake. Um, that Nikki Cross was making on, on... Now look, and part of that is Nikki Cross's dopey gimmick. But I mean, this was this blew away the Shayna Baszler-Nikki Cross match. Blew it away. And they were similar matches. And this was so much better. Tony Storm, and I've been, I've, been, I've been screaming from the rooftops, she is a fucking star. And I, you know I love Baszler, too. You guys have listened to the TV reviews. So this just worked for me. I mean, I loved the layout of the match, and then I loved the finish. Storm fighting to get to the ropes. They end up rolling onto the floor. Okay? And Baszler just leaves her there. And this is why this was brilliant. Because Baszler can then just wipe her hands and, and, and laugh as Tony Storm gets counted out. So they avoid Storm submitting. And they protect Storm to some extent there because she didn't give up. And Baszler still looks like a fucking badass motherfucker for choking her out and leaving her outside the ring for dead. That was almost that was way better than rolling her back into the ring and pinning her or rolling her back into the ring and submitting her was just leaving her out there and laughing at her. I mean, that was a tremendous finish all around. I mean, you look at the layout, and I talked about it with Zach Gibson and his tournament run and how each match built to the next. And I talked about it with British Strong Style and Undisputed Era, how one match built to the next with the blind tags and all that. And you look at the layout of this match, and you just look at the layouts and the match structures. And how these matches were laid out. And you compare it to the main roster. And it's not even close. Why can't we get this stuff on the main roster? With that, with, with as talented as the roster is. Deeper than it's been ever. You know. Five hours of TV. Tremendous production. And we get dog shit. Dog shit. On the main roster in this company. When this is what we could be getting. And it drives you nuts. The stuff on the network is so much better than the stuff on TV. And it's not even close. It's not even close anymore. This isn't exactly a hot take, I know. And this isn't a hot take either, but you you don't want people to move up in this company. You want them to stay on the network. Where you can enjoy them. How's that Daniel Bryan Dream Match Tour going? 
around with Cain like we told you he would be. But man, was this good. This whole show was good, aside from that Morgan Kelly disaster. And then the, the Pete Dunn-Zach Gibson final, again. You know, Gibson delivers again. And, and, and look, look, Dunn is great. Dunn is one of the best wrestlers in the world. Dunn, at this point, because he doesn't work weekly TV, and because he hardly ever works meaningless mid-card matches, Pete Dunn is the most consistently, he is the most consistent performer in the history of WWE slash WWF slash WWWF in terms of delivering great matches. His average match is probably over four stars for his career in this company. He is the greatest pound-for-pound, match-for-match wrestler in the history, in the history of this company. Name a match Pete Dunne has ever had in this company that didn't deliver on, at minimum, a very good level. Every match he's ever had has ranged from very good to match of the year caliber fucking awesome. That's his range. And look, he has the advantage of not working weekly TV. I get it. But I just think it's an interesting thing to look at. You still got to deliver in the spots that they put you in. And he delivers every single fucking time. This guy is so good. But he's like five foot five. And if Vince doesn't, you know, if, if Vince lives forever, this dude is fucked. And it's a shame. He's got such charisma and such presence. He comes off like this little fucking prick who isn't scared of anything and will tear your head off. He will out-wrestle you. He will out-fight you. He will be more cunning than you. He's a baby face now, but he really hasn't changed all that much from when he was a heel, which I love. It's just little things like, you know, now he's not as apt to take a shortcut, but he's not out there smiling and slapping high fives with kids and kissing babies. He's the same surly little prick that he was when he's a heel. And man, was this a great match with Gibson. I don't know. I can't decide whether I liked the Dunn match or the Banks match better. But they were both really fucking great. And my favorite spot in the, in the Dunn-Gibson match was, you know, Gibson's down. He's attacking the arm. He's trying to set up that uh, Shankly Gates. You know, he puts him, he puts Dunn in a hammerlock and throws him into the stairs. And he went for that helter-skelter on the floor that he used against his previous two opponents. And Dunn had him well-scouted and reversed it into the X-Plex. Again, the layouts of these matches were elite-level fucking tremendous if you were paying attention to the matches. I love this stuff. This is what I sink my teeth into as a fan. They get back into the ring. They're brawling. They have the, the, the dueling headbutt spot. 
which for you nerds who were worried about safety, they were headbutting each other's shoulders, so don't come at me with that. It was very safe. Dunn hits the bitter end. And the way that they had peaked it, I bought it. And Gibson kicked out of the bitter end. Who has kicked out of the bitter end? Maybe Tyler Bate? I don't even remember. The point here is it was shocking that he kicked out of this. Which tells me that they really do see something in Gibson. Dunn fights out of the Shankly Gates. Gibson gets desperate. He uses an avalanche helter-skelter. I'm standing and pacing in my den at this point. Back to the Shankly Gates. No dice. Dunn with the right hand of the face. Then he hits the bitter end for a second time, and Gibson was not kicking out of that move twice. What a tremendous title match. What a great fucking match. Full lands a wreck, four stars plus. For that, the Gibson-Banks match, the Undisputed Era Mustache Mountain uh, title change, and the six-man. All get the full lands a wreck. You cannot miss any of those four matches. High-level stuff. Two great shows. Top to bottom. The thing about these shows is top to bottom. Look at this second night. You open up with that tag team title change. You have some decent action in the middle. And then you get the tremendous Baszler-Tony Storm match. Which was a charisma explosion. um, An explosion of two wrestlers who just have their characters down so well. A tremendous finish. And then you get the Pete Dunn-Zach Gibson you know, epic world title match or UK, whatever you want to call it. It was a world title style match to finish the show. What a show this was. You know, I said these weren't as good as takeovers and they weren't, but this second night was as clo- was close, was close to takeover quality. Very close. And the first night, you know, they had to cram a lot of matches onto one show, but you know, it closed on a very strong uh, run with two great matches with the six-man match and the tournament final with Gibson and Banks. And nothing was bad, aside from the messy three-way. So I'm looking forward to the NXT UK brand because I, I think, look, we'll see. Now, look, we'll see how these wrestlers perform when they're asked to have six-minute TV matches as opposed to, you know, let's face it. This is Royal Albert Hall. It's two nights in a row. These were major shows for the local market. So we'll see how these guys perform in TV matches, weekly television, as opposed to when they're going out there in a big match setting. Now, we got a little bit of taste of that in some of the early tournament matches. And again, the first round, like I said, the YouTube portion, those matches weren't great. They were okay, but they weren't great. And a lot of them were flat out boring. But I am looking forward to the brand because I think when this brand has big shows like this one, they're going to deliver. They're going to deliver. I was very impressed with some people that I'm not normally impressed with is really the bottom line here when it comes to Zach Gibson 
and Flash Morgan Webster and Mass even Mastiff, you know, people like that. Travis Banks, who I, I've been, you know, I've been down on. So this this these were two excellent shows, particularly that second night. particularly in the area of match layouts and things of that nature. So that's your WWE UK stuff. Got so excited. I forgot about my ad read. If you ever shower, brush your teeth or make your hair look presentable, we've got some great news for you. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to get ready in the bathroom. You name it. Whether it's shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, and even the famous butt wipes that will leave your tushy feeling tingly clean. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that will not break your budget. We promise you'll feel the difference because we have. That's right. Myself and Rich have used the asshole wipes. They're tremendous. They're peppermint flavored. And they get the job done. Shipping is included with your membership. For just five bucks today, you can try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's amazing products. You'll get their Daily Essential Starter Kit. That's what it's called, the Daily Essential Starter Set. And that comes with the Body Cleanser, the One Wipe Charlies. Those are the butt wipes. The world-famous shave butter and their best razor, the one that Joe Lanza uses, nothing else touches my face. The six-blade executive razor. Keep the blades coming for just a few bucks more a month. You could add in shampoo, toothpaste, anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash voices. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash voices. All right, what do we got next? Do the TV reviews for the week. These are the Monday TV reviews, ROH, MLW, and Impact. If you are not a subscriber to our premium content, I don't know what the hell you're doing at this point. We don't plug it a ton. We don't try to bug people with it. But you get a ton of content for just $2 a month. $2 a month, which let's face it, that's free. $2 a month is free. For $2 a month, you get access to the overrun. When this show runs long and we run out of time and there's topics we haven't gotten to, we do a show called The Overrun. And all of our subscribers, $2 and up, have access to The Overrun. We guarantee at least one per month. There's really zero reason not to subscribe to that. If you love this show and you listen to it every week, why would you want to get left out of a topic? Subscribe to The Overrun. You miss zero flagship. We also have a $5 level. That's where everything else goes. When we do Joe and Rich recommend matches to each other, which is everybody's favorite, it's on the $5 level. When we do special interviews and events, like when Rich interviewed Cody one-on-one at Pro Wrestling Tees, that goes on the $5 level. When we do... Bouncing around Japan uh, randomly in the middle of the week because we feel like it. Or I do a show where I do uh, uh, business news or news updates. That goes on the $5 level. And the other thing that goes on the $5 level, twice a week, 
are the Lanza TV reviews every Monday and Thursday. Except when, you know, my kids are sick and I'm changing diapers and wiping noses and dealing with that. But normally, every Monday and Thursday, you get the Lanza TV reviews as well at that $5 level. And this Thursday, that will return with 205 Live, NXT, and maybe Championship Wrestling from Hollywood, you know, if Nesson decided to air it this week. But here on the flagship, we're going to do the Monday TV reviews that I was unable to get to because the kids were sick. And we're going to start off with ROH, and we're going to get to some news and notes along the way about all three of these promotions as well. So Ring of Honor kicked off this week, or last week, I should say. These are last week's shows. Dalton Castle cutting his go-home promo for Best in the World, which is this weekend. If you're looking for a preview of Best in the World, we did that hour three of last week's flagship. Every match was previewed with the exception of Austin Aries versus Kenny King, which hadn't been announced yet. Because, damn it, news always breaks as soon as we record the flagship. Being facetious, of course. Um... But yeah, so Dalton Castle cut his go-home promo. Excellent promo. Look, Dalton Castle is doing all of the right things. I think he's having decent matches. I think he's a a very underrated promo. He has good presence. His title run just hasn't worked. Um, It's weird. As a fan, I would like to see him retain. My business brain is telling me he needs to lose the title, probably to Cody. But I can live with Marty Skrull as well. But um, the title run just, it, it doesn't seem like it's worked. Bullet Club is still by far the most popular thing in this company. It's not even close. We'll get to that when we talk about the main event. And I really think it would be better to center their title around the Bullet Club shenanigans for business purposes. But we'll see what they do. It's a shame, but Dalton Castle has really been overshadowed. And, you know, Cody has turned that into part of the storyline build for this match, how Dalton Castle's title run just hasn't worked. So I think that's interesting too. Um, Jay Lethal is doing a gimmick where he wants back in the title hunt But the people who run Ring of Honor have told him he needs to start winning some matches. So he wants to defeat all of the people who have defeated him over the last few months. So we see footage of Chucky T defeating Jay Lethal in a tag match. And we've got Lethal versus Chucky T one-on-one, where Jay Lethal is attempting to avenge his loss. And that's going to be a running storyline for him, I guess. And he beat Chucky T here. I guess Lethal's going to beat Kushida at best in the world. There's really no reason for him not to, especially now that I, they're doing sort of this redemption deal with him where he's building his way back into title contention. He can't lose to Kushida, and there's really no reason for Kushida to beat him. This was one of two matches on the show this week, only two matches. There were a lot of inset promos and things like that building up best in the world. We're not going to go over all those. But the main event of this show was tremendous. And there's another four-star plus full lands of wreck. It was the Young Bucks and Hangman Page against the Briscoes and Punishment Martinez. And let me tell you about this match. One thing I was thinking about when I was watching this match is I see people all the time talking about great TV workers. Roman Reigns is a great television worker, people say. 
Seth Rollins has very good TV matches, people will say. What's funny is we never talk about the Young Bucks who are the very best TV workers. The Young Bucks never have a television match that's less than great. Whether it's a tag match, whether it's a six-man tag where they, where they really excel. You go back and watch all of the Bucks TV matches on ROH TV and they're all fucking great. But no one ever talks about the Bucks as great television wrestlers. And I don't understand why. They're the best. They deliver more consistently than anybody in television matches. And they wrestle on ROH TV a lot. If you listen to my uh, reviews, you know that. If you watch the show on a week-in, week-out basis, you know that. The Young Bucks never have a bad match. And they never take a match off. And they're, they are the best television wrestlers on the planet. And this was another example. The crowd was molten hot for this. Because it was the Bullet Club. Because it was the Bucks. The Bucks and the Briscoes are going to kill it at best in the world. I have no doubt about that now, especially after watching this. Plus, you had Punishment Martinez and Adam Page on opposite sides. They've got a world television title match at best in the world. This was as good of an old-school go-home match as you could have had for a pay-per-view possible. I don't know how you could have done better than this. But poor Dalton Castle opening the show and not closing it as world champion. So this was just all action. Um, Everybody looked good. There were a couple ugly, well, I don't want to call them ugly, but spots with Punishment Martinez where, and and I like him, but he didn't look to be the same caliber as everybody else he was in the ring with, but it wasn't glaring to the point where he didn't belong. You could just tell, look, he's in there with the big boys. You know, and, and it was it was obvious. But, you know, the closing stretch, they hit the J-Driller on... on uh, not Nick. Was it Nick? No, it was Matt. They hit the J-Driller on Matt. Jay Briscoe is the J-Driller. They set him up for their guillotine uh, finish. But Matt used a victory roll and scored the fall. Hot match. Great match. Four stars plus. Full lands a wreck. Go watch it. I didn't love the lethal Chuck Taylor match, though. Chucky T, I should say. Uh, The rest of the show, there's really not much to see. You could skip right to the main event. And best in the world is this is this weekend. Uh, will have occurred by the time a lot of you listen to this. And hopefully we can review that for you on the flagship next week. MLW Fusion this past week opened up with Trey Miguel. Hey, we just talked about in the opening segment of this show, young indie wrestlers, talented indie wrestlers who are primed to step up and become stars. Maybe Trey Miguel's another one. 
but clearly at this point doesn't have the star power. Uh, against Danny Santiago, who is the fella who came out in the gi, who got you know choked out by uh, Simon Gotch about a month ago on this show. Well, Santiago had some bad luck again as he was attacked by Teddy Hart. And Teddy Hart decided, I'm wrestling Trey Miguel. Okay. Miguel got more offense than you would think here. Hart wins it with a Canadian destroyer off the top rope. I am the world's uh, final and only Canadian destroyer defender. I love the Canadian destroyer. And if you're going to do that fucking thing off the top rope, uh, you score even more points with me. So Teddy Hart is still a maniac. They go to Teddy Hart in the back. And he says, I pray that MLW has the balls to keep booking me. I hope they can handle the heat from the back. Because people don't like me. I love how he how Teddy cuts his promos using, you know, like kayfabe vernacular. He just doesn't give a shit. And then they air it too. I mean, that could be Teddy Hart's gimmick. You know, he's just like, you know, guy who uses insider lingo on TV. So the camera pans over and ACH is kind of like looking at him and chuckling, like, listen to this goof. So Hart steps up to him. Asks him if he has a problem. ACH is like, calm down, dude. I have a problem with you. Things get heated. Rich Swan comes over to break things up. ACH is like, this guy is fucking crazy. So it looks like we're uh, careening towards a Teddy Hart ACH match, which, hey, I'm all about that. I'll watch those guys wrestle. Battle Riot is air, is going to air live on BN Sports. Think about that. And I don't think this is getting talked about enough. MLW has been on the air for like two months and they already have a live special airing on their network with this Battle Riot show. Which I've talked about on the subscription side, but look, it's going to be a 40-man Royal Rumble-style match with pinfall, submission, and over-the-top eliminations. No DQ, so it's going to be fucking wild. They've booked a bunch of crazy names for this thing already. Teddy Hart's in it. Davey Boy Smith Jr.'s in it. PCO is in it. Uh, you know, the whole MLW roster's in it. Conan's going to get in there. He's going to be in it. The budget for this thing's insane. And they're airing this show live. And there's a bunch of singles matches on the show, too. Hey, look. If you can... Look, they aired the show on YouTube. On their YouTube channel. I think it's on a couple day delay because they want to air in all their various markets or whatever. I think it is region blocked in some places though. Although I'm not positive on that. But if you don't get B in sports, which a lot of people don't, I get it. Look for the MLW show. It's very good. And they use a lot of good talent. And I think this live special is gonna be gonna be good. They're gonna do a nice job with it. I'm looking forward to it. And the battle riot could be just that. I think it could be a literal riot. I mean, it's going to be crazy. Um, Next up, Colonel Rob Parker and the stud stable are being interviewed by Vanessa Kraft in the back. 
Colonel Rob shoes away the stud stable, which is Paro and the Dirty Blondes. I don't know if Jake Hagar was there. I don't think he was. Because Colonel Rob wants to fuck Vanessa Kraft. He's like, hey, Vanessa, I invited you out for coffee some weeks ago. Why don't we go have that cup of coffee now? And he just, like, grabs her and takes off with the interview girl. She did not look pleased to be whisked away by Colonel Rob Barker. Which, again... I talk about this with Impact, but it's very obvious that woke wrestling Twitter is not watching MLW because they would have had a lot of problems with Colonel Rob taking, uh, you know, Vanessa Kraft away for a forced cup of coffee and God knows what else. But it was done in a goofy enough way where, you know, people who are grounded in reality aren't going to get up in arms about it. But I could totally see people... uh, thinking that this was a, uh, you know, side-eyeing this segment. So, as Colonel Rob walks away with the interview girl, Tom Lawler and Simon Gotch sneak into the stud-stable locker room to get up to some shenanigans, but we don't know what those shenanigans are. And we head to the ring for our second match of the evening, which is Barrington Hughes Versus a fella whose name that they never put on the screen. Now, they said the guy's name. I didn't really catch his name. I didn't write down his name. I didn't look up his name. Because I want to prove a point here. It shouldn't be my fucking job to research and see who the man wrestled. I understand it was a, 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 a 10 second squash. But I can't stand that. Tell me who's in the ring. I have no interest in Barrington Hughes. You know, I was told by people, you know, uh, I was told by the MLW office, give Barrington Hughes some time. You'll see why, you know, we're featuring this guy, why we're going to push him, why we like him. I said, okay, okay. Well, I've given it some time and I'm still not seeing it. I just see a very 1980s style obese gimmick, which I don't understand what you do with that in 2018. How far can you go with Barrington Hughes? He's worked nothing but 10-second squashes. And it's, you know, it's a dated gimmick. He's an obese guy who wins with a splash. I mean, what do you do with that in this day and age? Especially on a roster like this full of, like, these work rate guys who are out there having work rate matches. What do you do with a Barrington Hughes? I don't know. But we'll see. Maybe he wins the battle riot. During battle riot, I just want Rich Bocchini or Tony Schiavone, one of my Italian brothers, one or the other. I want one of them to throw out the old school battle royal line of, I think Barrington Hughes is going to win this thing because I don't think they can get that man over the top rope. I want to hear that line. Every WWF 80s and 90s Battle Royal and Royal Rumble, you heard that. Somebody said that line. 
Although I guess in this case you can pin the man or submit him. But I still want to hear that whine. So we go back to the back, which in this case was like a hotel hallway this week. And Colonel Rob Parker is back from his coffee date with Vanessa Kraft. And Team Lawler lets him know that they left him a gift in the locker room. And Colonel Rob's excited. He's like, oh, a gift. Everybody likes a gift, right? So he heads into the locker room. And he says, what is this now? There's duty in my hat. There's duty. His words, not mine. Tom Lawler took a shit in Colonel Rob Parker's hat. I don't know what else to add to that. This is MLW Fusion, where we shit in hats. Vandal Ortagoon took on Koto Brazil. Two preliminary guys. Brazil, of course, though, we've talked about many times on the reviews. It appears as though at some point they're going to push him. And that push begins now. He gets a big win, his first win, over Ortagoon. He won it with some wacky sliced bread variation. Vandal Ortagoon, of course, is a Turkish wrestler who was an alternate in the Cruiserweight Classic for a little trivia. And I like Brazil. You may know him as Snoop Strikes. He does a nice job. A lot of charisma. And the the crowd there, which is very similar to an impact zone, well, an old school impact zone crowd, or a current full sale crowd, you're starting to recognize the faces. It's regulars. And the regulars that they tape in front of have, have really taken a liking to Koto Brazil. So he's over in the building. I was kind of hoping they would stretch out his push a little bit and, and, and make his win a bigger deal and maybe, you know, get a win over a bigger name opponent. But, you know, they decided to pull the trigger now and that's fine. We'll see what happens with Koto Brazil. This can be a good sort of homemade, you know, homegrown star for them. And then the main event was Shane Strickland against Brody King. We talked about earlier in the show. Got the big Bola invite. He's a guy who's breaking through Brody King in a lot of different places. King's trying to collect a $20,000 bounty from Selena De La Renta. But he came up short. It was a good match. Not a great match. Good match. King tried to use the old Marty Skrull powder to the face, but Strickland kicked it back into his face. And then scored the fall. So King doesn't collect the bounty. I don't know where he goes from here. But De Laurenta has moved on. As Loki attacks Strickland from behind almost immediately in the Hitman gear. And it appears as though Loki is now being represented by De Laurenta. So we'll see about that. De Laurenta obsessed 
with not just taking Shane Strickland's title, but destroying the man. So a pretty good MLW. Not the best, not their best showing, but not their worst either. It was an okay show. They advanced some storylines. There was some goofiness. There was a debut of Teddy Hart. Main event was pretty good. Look, this is a decent week-to-week show, and it's well worth your time. It's an easy watch. It's a light hour. And you usually get a pretty decent main event. Which brings us to Impact. We open up LAX. They got the big title shot that Eddie Kingston earned them against DJZ and Andrew Everett. This match got plenty of time. It, it cut through the first commercial break. Here's what I don't understand, though. This was a tag team title match, right? And they're hyping up the main event as Ohio versus everything against Phantasma and Pentagon Jr. Why would that tag team match be the main event, but the tag team title match is the opener? That bothered me. Maybe it shouldn't, but it bothered me. Anyway, LAX wins the title. I didn't love this. I thought it was a little sloppy. Um, it, it, it reminded me of one of those old ECW tag team matches, which wasn't a tag team match at all. It's just bodies flying all over the place. No semblance of order. I know that bothers a lot of people about uh, New Japan tag team matches sometimes too, where things break down. But this wasn't a situation where things broke down. It just, this was basically a tornado tag. I mean, I didn't hate it or anything. I just thought it was a little sloppy. The important thing, though, here is LAX won the titles, and they made a real big deal out of it. A lot of times it would impact. Someone will win a match or someone will win a title, and they, they, they cut away quickly, go to commercial, go to Matthews and Callis, and it doesn't have a chance to sink in. They really gave this tag team title change a, a chance to sink in. And then there's more to talk about with this because, um, you know, there was stuff with, uh, with LAX back in the clubhouse later on in the show. Congo Kong and Jimmy Jacobs. Jimmy Jacobs is talking about how he's sick of Brian Cage taking up TV time and getting all kinds of attention. And those were the motivations for having Congo Kong attack Brian Cage and ruin his X Division title shot last week or a couple weeks ago, whenever it was. I'm not a fan of this. I think Cage should have won that X Division title. Next, we had a segment. KM is in the ring, and he's running down Falaba. They had a shoving match last week. Falaba comes down, and he's starting to get over as like a cult figure in Impact, as I predicted he would. Falaba pulled a note out of the folds of his fat and handed it to KM. This is what Impact is now, and it's tremendous. I mean, you get stuff like this. So Cam opens up this note. Falaba takes off. And it's poorly written in Falaba speak. I put clips of it on the uh, Patreon lens as I belch into the mic. But 
But at the end of the note that was passed to KM, Falaba says he has a special mystery opponent for KM tonight. KM accepts. It turns out it's Scott Steiner. And then Scott Steiner lays a beating on KM. You see, KM is Falaba's bully. So Falaba booked, I don't know why he has this power, but he booked KM with an even bigger bully in Scott Steiner. I thought this was all very amusing. I enjoyed this. Next, we're told we've got footage of Eddie Edwards, who's visiting his home, looking for his wife, who he suspects is fucking Tommy Dreamer. So the camera crew's already there. We see Eddie Edwards pulling into his driveway in his Escalade. He's running over garbage cans. This is all so ridiculous. There's spooky music playing in the back. So he goes up to his front door and he's like banging on the door. Why doesn't he have a key? This is his house. So he's banging on the door going, Alicia, let me in. He's calling her on the phone. Dude, it's your house. Just take out the key and walk in. So Eddie Edwards has to break into his own house, which was absurd. So he gets into the house, and I almost fucking lost it. He immediately makes a beeline to the kitchen, opens up the refrigerator, and takes a swig of what looked to be like some kind of orange juice. Which I thought was great. Because this man is in the middle of a, of a blind rage. He thinks his wife is fucking Tommy Dreamer. He can't get Sammy. He wants to murder Sammy Callahan. Literally murder him. And can't get him off his mind. He has to break into his own house. Because he doesn't have a key. And the first thing he does. Is he makes a beeline for the kitchen. You know. Pulls open the fridge. And takes a swig right out of the carton. Of some orange juice. Which is exactly what any of us. Would have done as well. Because what's the first thing you do when you walk into your house? You go into the refrigerator. You open up whatever is available and you take a swig. It doesn't matter if you think your wife is fucking Tommy Dreamer. It doesn't matter if you want to literally murder Sammy Callahan. It doesn't matter if you're on the edge of sanity. The first thing you do when you walk in your house is you take a swig out of the orange juice container. You ever get to, like, the bottom of the orange juice container, like the carton, right? And you take a swig and you're like, man, there's only, like, one swig left. So I'm just going to leave this here so someone else can finish it and throw it out. So you put it back in. You come back a couple hours later the next day and you notice it's still there. So like, ah, I'm going to finish it off. So you take another swig, but you notice it's like, oh, man, there's still a swig left. So you put it back. Same thing happens the next day or a couple hours later. It's, it's, maybe it's just me, but it always feels like to me that that final swig of orange juice is actually like 15 swigs. You're like, fuck, does this thing ever end? It feels like there's nothing in here, you know? But like, you could do that, like, it feels like for like a week, you know, two weeks straight before it's finally empty, before you're finally, you know, you got the thing up above your head and you're like, you're tipping, you're shaking it to get that last, you know, drip out of it. Like, 
that final swig is always in reality like 10 to 15 swigs. I think like we're all terrible estimators of like how much a swig actually is, you know? Like you ever get to like a milk cart, like a, you know, like a gallon of milk. Like ah, I could chug the rest of that. And then like you realize it's like not, not a, not a chance. You're like, Oh my God, this is like three or four chugs. I thought this looked like one chug. I think we're very bad at eyeballing that. Like as a society. So anyway, now Eddie Edwards, you know, and now he's in the, the house is empty by the way. So I think the implication is that Alicia moved out and took everything with her. What a fucking savage, right? There's no furniture. The only thing she left behind was that carton of orange juice. And I'm going to tell you why she left it behind. She shook it a little and she thought there was only a swig. She's like, ah, I'm not taking it. There's only a swig left. She fell for it too. But the house is empty. The only thing left was that fucking orange juice. So Edwards is, again, he's kicking down doors, which I don't understand why he doesn't have keys to his own house. He's kicking down doors inside the house, which I don't understand why he doesn't have the keys to the locks of the doors in the house. He's breaking whatever scant furniture has been left behind. And he comes across a mirror. And he's staring in this mirror. And his reflection turns into Sammy Callahan. Not the ultimate warrior, but Sammy Callahan. Who he's already defeated. But he, remember, he wants to murder him. Sammy Callahan is so over Eddie Edwards that he's already moved on to a feud with Pentagon Jr., But Eddie Edwards is still obsessed with Sammy Callahan to the point that that's what he sees when he looks in the mirror. So, of course, Eddie breaks the mirror, which means, you know, he's destined to seven years of bad luck. And then he's sobbing into a broken shard of mirror. About Alicia and Tommy Dreamer and Sammy Callahan. And oh boy, this is just, look. This Eddie Edwards stuff, you either love this or you think it's the goofiest shit going. And I'm not sure where I stand. I think it's goofy. I hated the fight in the woods. I thought that was dumb. But I'm not sure how I feel about Eddie Edwards' home invasion of his own home. I'm not sure where I stand on this one. Because taking a swig of that orange juice was just, I don't know. I, that was just such tremendous storytelling that I'm, I'm not sure I can bash it. Because as soon as I finish this show, I'm going to get up and go take a swig of orange juice out of my fridge. I mean, that's just what you do. Why would you change that behavior? Just because you're breaking into your own house because you think your wife is fucking Tommy Dreamer in said house. You're not. You're still going to swig the orange juice.
Taya Valkyrie took on Madison Rain. The one takeaway from here for me was Taya Valkyrie is like twice the size of Madison. I didn't realize she was that big. Or maybe I didn't realize Madison was that small. But anyway, Madison gets the banana peel win. That's how she's been beating people. She beat Tessa Blanchard the same way. She cut a promo after the match saying, hey, look, very similar to the Jay Lethal promo on the ROH show, in fact. She said, hey, look, I want a title shot. Management said I had to win matches. I'm winning matches. Where's my gold? So she's gunning for a title shot. We go to the LAX Clubhouse. You know these are my favorite segments. King was right. They won the title. So LAX, they're celebrating with the gold. Diamante is now coming around. Remember, she was skeptical of uh, Eddie Kingston, but now she's like, hey, you delivered the gold. So they're, they're celebrating. They're drinking. They throw these great little things in these. Eddie, uh, you know, uh, Kingston's got the phone out. He brings Santana over. He's like, hey, let's take some selfies for those uh, white girls you mess with for the gram. So apparently, Santana of LAX, he's banging white girls. Good for him. So they're taking selfies for the gram. With the titles, trying to impress the white girls. Hey, look, these are Eddie Kingston's words, not mine. So, you know. I hear the sirens of the woke police. You're getting on the wrong guy. I just review the shows. And Conan is back. Conan shows up, finally. And everyone's like, holy shit, it's Conan, you know? Remember, he got jumped. He's been gone for like two months. So LAX and Diamante take off. Conan wants some one-on-one time with Kingston. And Conan didn't come out and say it. But he strongly implied that he thinks Kingston set him up to get jumped. Kingston's like, hey, man, we missed you. We're doing good things here. We got the tag team titles back. We're celebrating. We're drinking. We've always been straight up with each other. I got nothing to hide from you. Come on, brother, calm down. Conan's like, all right, all right, for now. But clearly... Clearly, Conan is skeptical of Eddie Kingston. This stuff is fucking great. Uh, What Impact needs to do, Garrett, I hope you're listening. What Impact needs to do is put together all of these LAX Clubhouse segments and, and into one and make a little mini movie when this thing is over. Because where the Eddie Edwards stuff is, I'm on the fence with and I'm not sure what I think about it. The Sue Young stuff, I fucking hate, okay? When it comes to this LAX stuff, they're fucking home runs every time. And in all seriousness, you really need to go out of your way to watch Conan and Eddie Kingston cut the promos on each other in this segment. It is fucking great. And not even just by pro wrestling standards. It's just great. This little scene that they shot between the two of them would fit right in 
in any gritty Brian De Palma movie. These guys are just, Conan and Eddie Kingston are just great. And that's why I think that these LAX segments, these clubhouse segments work for me, where, like, the Sue Young stuff, I can't deal with the supernatural bullshit. The Eddie Edwards stuff, his acting is just so over the top. The Eddie Edwards stuff is almost so bad that it's good. The LAX stuff is good because it's good. We got a profile on the Hitman guy, the evil abusive cop who is now known as Killer Cross. So I guess soon we'll see him in action. As that mystery was solved. So he'll be the next big heel. And then we had our main event, which was Ohio versus everything against Phantasma and Pentagon Jr. Phantasma and Pentagon Jr. win the match. But then Sammy Callahan attacks Pentagon after the match. And they attempt to rip his mask off. So like I said, Sammy Callahan has moved on. That's what's so cool about the Eddie Edwards thing. Eddie Edwards beat Sammy Callahan. Even Sammy knows he was beaten. He's moved on to to different ventures. He's now feuding with Pentagon Jr. But Edwards cannot let go of Sammy Callahan. My neighbor's mowing his lawn, and it's really loud, and I don't know if you guys can hear that. But every time he, like, goes by the section of his lawn that's near my house, like, it, I can hear it through my headphones. It's very loud. I have never mowed a lawn in my life. I'm proud to say that. And I've been a homeowner for 10 years. I pay a guy. I pay a guy. I don't mow lawns. I sit on my couch and watch the game while someone else mows the lawn. I don't understand why anyone would mow a lawn. It costs like 30 bucks. The fuck am I going to go out there in the Texas heat and push a lawnmower for? It's insane. You know how hot it gets here? Listen, you have a chance to pay a guy, you pay a guy. He comes like once every two weeks. It's like 60 bucks a month. Well worth it. What am I missing out on with that 60 bucks? Going out to eat like once with my wife or something? Listen, I'll have a peanut butter and jelly one night a month if it means I don't have to mow that fucking lawn. I mean, you know, I'm just laying it out there. You know, I'll give up, you know, a trip to Applebee's you know, and have some ramen noodles for dinner one night if it means I don't have to go push a lawnmower when it's 108 degrees outside. Like my dopey neighbor out there. Look at him. I'm looking out my window now. He's got no shirt on. He's sweating like a pig. He's wiping his brow every 20 feet. Fuck that. $30 is a bargain. Trust me. Anyway, that's the flagship this week. I got nothing left. I got nothing left. I know I uh, was looking for extra topics on Twitter 
right before I hit the record button. Why don't we do that? Why don't I see what people wanted me to talk about? Let's check it out. Oh, okay. People want us to talk about this uh, New Japan show that Will Ospreay accidentally mentioned for September. Look, I would love to talk about it. I don't know enough about it. I'm sure myself and Rich will talk about it next week. That seems to be the most popular topic that people wanted us to uh, get into. I, I Look, at the time of this recording, I just I don't know enough about it. I know what everybody else knows. Will Ospreay spilled the beans on a New Japan show that's supposedly happening in September and supposedly happening in L.A. Dave Meltzer claims that's not in L.A., but didn't give a location. So I don't know. Maybe next week we'll know more. So that's it, guys. That's the flagship this week. DollarShaveClub.com For the butt wipes. Right now, Sprint has a great deal. Double the fun. Buy the latest iPhone and get an iPhone XR on us. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1 today. iPhone 10 or 64 gigabyte, 3125 month. Second phone, $0. After 3125-month month credit, apply within two bills. Requires two new lines of service. If canceled earlier, remain a balance due. Coverage and offer not available. Every $30 activation fee. Restrictions apply. Tax to its head. 